You may be seated. It's good to see everyone. We are coming to the end of this first section of Ephesians that has been one really long sentence. So I wanted us to, to look at it again and read it in its entirety along with this morning section to just kind of get the, the sense of the whole thing. So here we go. Blessed be or praise God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. <clears throat> In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. <clears throat> in him, in Jesus, we haven't obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." This morning, as we, we get to this third main thing that Paul is saying that we have because of Christ. I mean, he started out first with we were chosen in Christ. He then shared with us about how we have been redeemed in Christ. And then this morning, he's going to say that in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. And so I'm just kind of curious, what is the first thing you think about when you think of inheritance? I don't think I'd be far off to say that many people, at least at some point, what comes into mind is money. Right? Or a house, a car, a cabin, something that represents wealth. This idea of what would, would come to someone when they get an inheritance. I, I, that's the thing of movies, right? The, the, the long lost great aunt who's a millionaire, has no children to give her own money to, right? And then she finally gives her money to her nephew or her niece and then comes at just the right moment to change everything in their life and everything's wonderful from that point forward. I mean, that's, that's the right thought behind the word of, of inheritance. I mean, the word inheritance, whether we're talking about it in English or in Greek, has this idea of obtaining something, being given something. But it also, especially in Greek, has this idea of being chosen. Uh, we can see that in our English language when we talk about inheritance and heir, right? An heir is the one who, who is chosen to receive something. And the inheritance is what they receive. It's, it's the object of, of what they get, now, choosing and obtaining, that idea often goes hand in hand. And, and it's that range, especially as we come to Ephesians 1.11 this morning, can make it really complicated to talk about the very beginning of this, this statement. Um, it's partly a problem because Paul likes to use the passive voice. Now, what's funny is most of us as English speakers probably can't even say what the passive voice is. I didn't learn what the passive voice was until I had to learn other languages so I could even understand what they're doing. This is what we're doing when we do the passive voice. He loves me, that's an active statement, versus I am loved, that's a passive statement. And you can see already the problem that begins to happen with passive language, which is, I am loved by who? <laughs> what's going on here? We have to add extra language in there. I am loved by him right? What well, gets even worse, the amount of words we have to add in English to make sense out of the passive, especially when we put it in the past tense. He loved me. I have been loved. I have been loved by him. See all those extra words we have to start putting in there. It's part of why we try to avoid, or at least English teachers really want you to avoid it, because it can make things much more confusing than just using the active 
voice. Well, Paul, Paul here really likes using the passive. So at the very beginning of Ephesians 1.11, this is what he basically says. In him, in Christ, we, and then this past passive of this idea of to inherit, obtain, be chosen. So guess all the different choices we have here. We could translate that as in him, in Christ, we have inherited, we have been inherited, we have been chosen, we have been made an inheritance, we have been chosen or a possession. Look at all those different ways you have to decide what is going on here in this sentence. And you can even see it as we look at different English translations. And we saw this morning the translation we tend to read from, which is the ESV. It says, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. But you can see in like the New English translation says this, in Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession since we were predestined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, the way that you translate that one little word makes a very big difference in how you understand this passage. The second half of the, the statement is the same in almost every translation, but whether or not we are the object of the inheritance or we are receiving something is a big question here. And what I think about in this moment is a, a language professor, a pastor that I used to know who used to exclaim, and they're both gloriously true. Right, so often when we come to language issues in the Bible, it's really not changing anything for us because both of these things are beautiful truths that we should want to know and love. And I want to take a moment there to pause and give you an encouragement. You know, so often when people bring up biblical language, it's often to try to make it sound as though if you knew that, you would just understand things better. It, it is amazing how well our Bibles have been translated. In fact, I heard a statistic once that it's something like 99.9999% of all the language issues in the Bible make zero difference to our theology. It doesn't change anything that we would believe about God and, and anything that would really change how, how we read it. In fact, of that 0.0001%, almost all of that is because of the very ending of Mark, which most people aren't sure was meant to be there. So we can actually just say, like, if you just can wonder about those couple last verses in Mark, everything else is fantastically well-preserved by God. And our translations are so good. I mean, praise God for people that can let us know that it's being transmitted on well, but also praise God that he has kept his word so well over generations for all of us that we might know him and understand his desire for us. And I bring it up this morning just to admit that different preachers could preach a amazingly different, yet still God-honoring uh, sermons on this passage. They could take different directions, and both of them would be loving towards God. I mean, on the one hand, we could take this section to mean that in Christ, we have been made God's possession. We've been made his inheritance, his thing that he is taking for himself. And that goes very well with so much of what we've already seen in, in Ephesians 1 of God choosing us, that we might be his sons and daughters. Now, we have places like in Exodus 19.5 and Deuteronomy 14.2 and 26.18 where we see this, but we see a really good example in Malachi 3.17 where God through his prophets says, they shall be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Or we can see it in the, in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2.19 where Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Part, part of God choosing us, predestining us for, for the life that he's given us doesn't mean just setting us apart from other people, but rather setting us apart to himself, that we might be his, that he might have us as his own possession. 
Now, on the other hand, we can see this to mean that we've been given an inheritance. You know, we, we can see that Jesus talks about this often. Jesus says this in Matthew 19. He says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or land for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit everlasting life eternal life. That's, that's the promise here of the inheritance, that we would receive this life with him that continues on, this life of knowing him face to face. And this is what Jesus says when he says it in Matthew 25. He says, then the king, speaking of himself, will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You know, here we're inheriting a kingdom. We're, we're becoming part of, of God's very plan and purpose for the future. And we can see that this idea of inheritance always points to the future. This idea of, the, the, of every blessing in the heavenlies that Paul has been talking about in Ephesians, we see that in our future with Christ, we are promised all good things and a true inheritance as his people. I mean, these, these two images, this idea that we would inherit something, eternal life, the kingdom of God, a, a place with him, and this idea of being God's possessions, that they play out again and again throughout scripture, uh, speaking back and forth about what God is doing. And if I had to pick a direction of where I think Paul was starting in this section, I would say that I think Paul was starting with the idea of, of us getting an inheritance, you know, we've seen as we work through, first, uh, through Ephesians 1 here that, that Paul keeps saying, in Christ, we were chosen. In Christ, we have been redeemed. It would make sense to continue keeping us the subject of the sentence that in Christ, we have an inheritance. And especially when we look down just a little bit in Ephesians 1.13, we see this. It says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory here, it's not complicated what the language is saying. It's very simply just our inheritance. So it makes sense that, that Paul is starting at the beginning here, talking about the inheritance that we have and that he's going to move on and talk about how that inheritance is seen as secured. And it's tempting to, to just say both are glorious, tr gloriously true and pick one and go down a different path. But this morning, I want to suggest that I think both of these are meant to be in mind whenever we talk about it. In fact, it's, it's a lot like when we say we need to love God and love others. Now, when we think about loving God, it has to have an outworking in us. It, it should boil up and boil and flow over into our interaction with others, with them feeling loved. And when we talk about loving others, how do we know that we are loving them and actually caring for them if we don't know our God and love him in his very good ways, the ways that he is calling us to? In the same way, to think about our inheritance means that we have to think about the God who possesses us that we might have this inheritance. And to think about being God's possession, his very beloved sons and daughters, means that we have a purpose, something that he is taking us to a place in a person in a future. They are two sides of the same coin and something that we really should not try to think about one without the other. And I think that's true because of the grand story that God has shown us. I mean, it's one of my favorite things. Do you realize how amazing of a God we have that chose to reveal himself to us through a living story across millennia? I mean, he could have just given us a book, a handbook as it were, it'd be huge, with, with a really slick glossary that had every possible human issue that you could ever face. You turn to that page, decide what would be the right thing to do there, and then move on with your life. But instead, God knew that if he had just showed up to us and tried to reveal himself like this, it'd probably break us. <laughs> 
it would probably break us both in the magnitude of his glory and magnificence, and it would probably break us to try to begin to understand him. So he revealed himself to us through a living story, a living story that we can go back in scripture and see. And like, like this morning, I want to start with just his people in Egypt. Now we, we land there in the Exodus with his people having been there 400 years. Do you know how long ago 400 years ago was for us? I mean, 400 years ago, there was the Dutch trading company, the Dutch West Indies company that was beginning a settlement in the New World, our, our continent, that was called New New Netherlands. We don't have that anymore. That became New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Jersey. And the Virginia Trading Company was failing, so King James I took their, their company and turned it into the Virginia colony. Right? This is pre-pre-revolutionary war 400 years ago. Stuff that most of us don't think about that much, even in school. And if you even knew anything about your families 400 years ago, my guess is maybe at best it's a name, maybe just a glimpse of a story of something that happened back there. And that's, that's the people that we drop into that have been in Egypt for 400 years, 400, almost 500 years removed from Abraham and the promises of God, right? These are a people that God chose before they were even a people. It was a plan that God set in motion and guaranteed before they were even alive. It was a plan that God set forth when they were just one man, Abraham, in Genesis 15. And God chose them to be his own possession that he might bring himself glory, and he chose them aside from anything that they personally were doing. So what does God do then with these people that he chose? He redeems them. He redeems them by the blood of the lamb on the doorposts that he might pass over them in his wrath and that they might be saved. And then he leads them out, leads them out through water, a picture of new birth, of baptism, and out into the wilderness where he meets them again at a mountain that he might reiterate his promises to them and tell them of how much he loves them, that he wants to give them a new land for their possession. And he promises them to give them a place. And we see that he promises to give them a person. Those two ideas of them having a future and a place and them having the very person of God himself are inseparable in the story. We see right from Exodus 6 this, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. He gets them, they get to him. And you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I mean, as I mentioned last week, this is the image of the garden being remade. And God beginning to bring his people back to a place where he can be with them and they might experience being his very people, his sons and daughters, taking them to a place with new land where they might see him. You know, as we see him go throughout that story as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of a cloud by day, his very presence with them. And when Paul mentions here in Ephesians 1.11 that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, I think he's thinking about both of those ideas. Uh, that idea that we are being brought back into the place of God where God is at that we might be his. It's this entire package. Have you ever thought about what both of those statements mean for you. The fact that God wants to give you an inheritance, a place where you can be with him and have himself, and the reality that he wants to take you as his own. Paul here continues to set the reality of our salvation on a firm foundation that has nothing to do with anything we did. 
It has to do with a God who chose to give us himself, a God who chose to give us a future in a place with him, and a God who wants to draw us to himself as his beloved sons and daughters. That means we can stop striving. That means we can rest in what God has done for us alone in Christ, as Paul keeps saying here in Ephesians. Both of those things are his glorious doing. We do not have to worry anymore because he has done it all for us and he's holding us that it might stay true. And I think that both of these images are in Paul's mind because he starts to switch his language here. Here in this section, we see that Paul uses we very differently. And previously, when he's talked about we, he's been talking about all Christians. We all in Christ Jesus have been chosen. We all in Christ Jesus have redemption. Yet here he changes the we. Here he begins to think about the difference between Jews and Gentiles. Right? And we know that because if we look down a little bit further in Ephesians 1.13, we see him say, in him you also there's some sort of distinction between we and this piece. There's a piece that he's thinking, we as Jews, you as Gentiles, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, he's separating it. So why do I think that changes something significant? <coughs> why would Paul's switch back to the Jewish people seem to be important here? I think it's because it's another pointer that Paul's back in that big story. Paul's back in that big story of what God has done. He's thinking about God's amazing selection of a people before they've done anything. He's thinking about God's amazing work of redemption for them to lead them out, bring them to himself, begin to bring them to a place. And Paul is remembering that what we see at that stage in the story is failure. It's what we see. God's people never fully walked into that promise. Yes, they entered into the land, but they did not drive out all the people as they were supposed to. Yes, they entered into the land and inherited houses and vineyards they did not plant and houses they did not build, yet they intermarried. They served and worshiped idols, and they continued to fall away from God. In fact, at this point in the story, what we see again and again is a downward spiral through the judges and the kings away further and further from God. Yes, we get pause moments with good kings. Yes, we get pause moments with good judges. Yes, the prophets come and share things, and every now and then it makes a difference to the people for the moment, but the process continues as his people under the law, which cannot change their hearts, continue to move further and further away from God until he exiles them, until they're sent out away from him. God wasn't surprised by that. God knew that was exactly what was going to happen. Go back and look at Deuteronomy 30 here. He starts out with this statement, and when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse. He's been telling them all the good things that will come to them as they listen to him as the Lord, their God, and telling them all the bad things that will happen if they were to do something wrong. And here he doesn't say, and if all these happen to come upon you, he says, and when. When these things come upon you, the blessings and the curses. When they receive the blessings and see what it's like to walk with the Lord, but then when they receive the curses of walking without him, he says, which I have set before you and you call them to mind from among the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you and return to Yahweh your God, you and your children and obey his voice and all that I've commanded you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the utmost parts of heaven, from there Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers, and Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Paul is thinking in this moment as any good Jewish citizen and believer would have under Roman rule, how was God going to bring about the promise? The promise that they never actually saw fulfilled in their life. And, and they would have all known if they'd been reading scripture, part of why it hadn't been fulfilled is they had a problem that still needed to be dealt with. A problem that we'll continue to look at more as we go through Ephesians, this idea of needing their heart changed. And what God promises as he brings them back to him, Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The law wasn't sufficient to do what only God could do by working in our hearts, working to open our eyes and our ears, helping our minds to understand the beauty of what he has done. And Paul is seeing that occur. Paul is seeing that at Pentecost. Paul is seeing that as Jews embrace Christ as their Messiah. Paul is seeing that in his own life as he is coming to faith in the true God-man, Jesus Christ, and people's hearts are being changed. And Paul sees that first and foremost in his Jewish friends, those whom Christ came to, that he might make his promise good and true. That is what Paul is talking about in this first section, the promise that they are going to be given the very presence of God and an inheritance with him forever as his people. In him, Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. And seeing this mass conversion of Jewish brothers and sisters trust in the Messiah, Paul sees God is fulfilling his promises in ways that Paul and no one else was expecting. As we know, they expected the Messiah to ride in and overthrow Roman rule that they might have a here and now kingdom. But Paul is seeing that that picture was just a glimpse of the reality of what God wanted to do for us, for them in Jesus Christ. Paul can look here and say that we have obtained in the past tense. It's done, over with, assured, no question. And he can say that while the Jews are still under Roman rule. He can say that because Paul is realizing that it's not about that land. That's not the question in that moment. The promise isn't being fulfilled in Paul's mind through the physical land of Israel. That was just a picture and an image, an image that showed the beauty of the steadfast love of God for his people and a God who would do the one thing that they desperately needed, which was change them. As always, it is pointing forward to something much more important, much more real, an inheritance with God as his people in eternity future. Paul saw in his own life and in the life of his Jewish brothers and sisters, the same story played out on a personal level. Uh, that, that grand story that over thousands of years played out in, in the people of Israel in their own life, people who were rebellious and away from God, a people who needed to be chosen, a person who needed to be redeemed, and a person who needed to be given an inheritance both as God's very beloved sons and daughters and as those who have a future with him, again, in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul was seeing what the writer of Hebrews talks about as the new mediator of a new covenant. <clears throat> Therefore, he, Jesus Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called 
Ephesians language, may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them, redemption, from the transgression committed under the first covenant. Christ's mediation was not just for a temporary earthly inheritance, though we begin to experience that inheritance in very real ways in our life today, but about an eternal inheritance in the life to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, where, not, where we will not only inherit a forever place, a place much better than just the physical land on earth, but a, a place, a new city garden that God is creating where we get to be with him, but we are also brought into a perfect forever relationship with God as his possession and as his people. We come back to that statement in Exodus 6, 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. All of that, Paul tells us again in Ephesians, is according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. Our God, who is over all things, our God who takes counsel only with himself has decided this is the grand story of how he wants to save us. This is the grand story of how he wants to reveal himself to us because it's the grand story that we find ourselves in, both literally in history, but also in our personal lives. It's the same process again and again. Our God who is over all things will make this happen for his people. And we also see in this amazing work of what God has done, as Paul sees, for his Jewish brothers and sisters, for himself, uh, giving them, making good on his promise, pointing towards the true inheritance that they have as his people and his possession, that Paul sees that this same truth is happening for Gentiles as well. That's the turn he makes here when he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When he says, in Christ you also, he's referring back to the whole statement, in Christ you also have an inheritance. You have all these things are true for you as well. Paul looks at the Gentiles and sees them being brought into the same story. He sees the lines merging into one lane now, as it were. Because the story in one sense is the same for them. They too are a people who have rebelled against God. They too are a people who needs God to choose them, to draw them to himself, to ignite faith in their hearts that they might see that they are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and that they too would be given an inheritance, a future and a place as God's people. Paul sees that God is doing this and where he sees it is specifically through this when they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You know, God, in fulfilling his promise to the Jewish people, poured out his Holy Spirit upon them and Paul is seeing the same Holy Spirit being poured out upon Gentiles as well and says God is making one plan. God is bringing all people to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can say this to the Galatians. He can say, there is neither now Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs, inheritance language, according to the promise. That passage in Galatians is all about our salvation. 
all are now heirs. All heirs are now in Jesus Christ, sealed with his Holy Spirit. All have received the same promise, a future place, a future land where we are face to face with our God and we are his as his beloved sons and daughters in the Holy Spirit. And we see that in ways now, very true, true ways, but ways in which we're waiting to see fully someday in the future as the Lord takes us there. Do you see the amazing unity of our faith here? How all believers have had the same great need. How all believers are part of the same great story with the same great pro progression and the same great God who has stepped into the story to love us. His Holy Spirit is his seal of his work in our life. That we may walk with God today as a glimpse of what is promised to come. And that that is true for us with believing Jews, believing Christians in Boise, believing Christians in South Africa and Asia across this whole world. We have an amazing unified faith in Jesus Christ. That that has always been the one answer for all of God's people. And he brought that together in that moment on the cross that we might see it fully. Friends, we live in a grand story, a, a living story where God has revealed himself to all of his people, to the Jewish people first and then to the Gentiles, that the bigger story that he shows us might play out in our personal life for salvation, that we would see that we need a God to choose us both despite our sins and because our sins need covering. And we need a God who would redeem us through his own blood in a once-for-all sacrifice. And a God who would give us an inheritance in his place and to give us his own self. A God who would take us as his people to own and keep. That picture is played out in our lives, in the lives of the people of Israel from Genesis to Jesus. And we see it play out today still in our families and in our church life as well, as we're going to see as we study more in Ephesians. In Christ, we have been chosen by a God who predestined us to that. In Christ, we will be redeemed by a God who died our sinner's death on the cross, even though he walked in perfect righteousness, allowing him to pick his life back up and be seated in authority next to the right hand of the Father. And we have a God who has given us an inheritance, a future place where every blessing in the heavenlies will be true for us, a place where we will be with God and we will be God's. And all of that, as Sharon said this morning, is to the praise of his glory. In this section, we see it two different times. Paul talks about it for them as Jewish people so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then as he looks at Gentiles and say that, that they might be to the praise of his glory. And if we zoom out and we look at this really long sentence, we see that that idea of praise, praising God bookends this entire section. It's where we start and it's where we end. This story is meant to drive me and you to our knees in worship of God again and again. An amazing God who has done it all for us. An amazing God who holds it all for us just as he holds us. That is part of why we gather this morning, to remember and to worship, to remember the story, be brought back into the living story of our living God and what he has done for us and to be brought to praise and when we, when we think about our inheritance, we should be thinking about the grace that God has given us that fills us up, overflowing out, out of our lives all over the place. And we should be thinking about that future where we are with God and where we have God as our friend. 
And we should be thinking about our inheritance as a place, a person, and as grace. We should be thinking about all of those. And to not be thinking about one of those is to be missing an incredible aspect of who our God is and what he's done for us in our inheritance. All right, which one of those is hard for you? Is it the place? The place because we don't quite see it yet? I hope you long for that place where you are just with God. Because we are told that the moment we pass from this world that we are in the presence of God. We are right back in that place with him again. And it's a beautiful thing. Is it hard to think about the person being with the Lord himself? Do you realize that we have seen that in Jesus Christ? And that our entire faith is wrapped up in knowing him and being known by him. It's a beautiful thing that he's called us to. And then, is it hard to think about the grace? We are so blessed by God to be on this side of Jesus' coming that we might look back and ponder on things that so many wanted to know, that angels desired to look into, and we can now see exactly how God's grace might and was poured out on us, and that it was done in Jesus Christ at the cross. We have the place of God promised to us as our inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth. We have the very person of God, seen most clearly in the God-man Jesus Christ, promised as our inheritance, whom we will walk with daily, and as the one who has taken a hold of us, who, who keeps us as his very own. We have a foundation of grace that makes that all possible. Would you pray with me? Lord God, would we never stop marveling at your living way of revealing yourself to us, your way of using a people for thousands of years that we might see and know all the ways of folly that we might want to run into and the reality that we need to be changed by a God who comes to us, a God that, that wants to come and draw us to himself by his very person and works through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Lord God, would we love that story? Would we thank you for our inheritance, the very place and person and grace in which we will come face to face with you? God, would you make that very real to us even today? Would we see glimpses of that in our community, in our friends, <coughs> as we walk with one another, pointing each other to the beauty that we have in Jesus Christ? It's in his name I pray, amen. Now this, this section is always a, a beautiful reminder for us, and I pray you never tire of that. If you are here this morning and you don't yet believe in Jesus Christ, I want to draw you into that story, not just because it's a story, but because it's reality. It's who our God really is. And I believe all of us know that it is the real story of our life, the need for someone to love us, draw them to ourselves and deal with our sins that we might have life fully with God through Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you, you already have put your faith in Jesus Christ, I pray you both don't tire of this, but I also pray that you take this as an example. Uh, that again, after every sermon, when you think and about what it would mean to be an unbeliever and hear this, you think about who you might share this with in your life. Who you might share the beautiful, large story of God and how we fit into it and how that is describing the very nature of what occurs in our own heart and how we need that God who would come and save us, that we might put our faith in Jesus Christ.